action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and creative director of Trash, which could be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua winning the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. Joshua and I have a big old shared film knowledge, but there is always gaps that need to be filled. So for this episode, Joshua has recommended the film that I've not yet seen. Joshua chose Thelma and Louise directed by Ridley Scott. Joshua. Thelma and Louise are best friends who decide to go away for a weekend together. Louise, played by Susan Sarandon, is a conscientious grown-up who likes things neat and tidy, while Thelma, played by Gina Davis, is a chaotic housewife living with an uncaring husband. When, on their first night away, Thelma is attacked by a man at a bar, Louise intervenes and kills her attacker. Scared and certain the law will condemn them to jail or worse, they go on the run, or the drive, heading for Mexico in their 1966 Thunderbird convertible. Rob, what did you think about this? I fucking loved this movie. Oh, I had so never replaced. seen it before. I'd never seen it before. It always been on my list of things to see. Um, and I remember it used to be on either Netflix or Amazon, and I had it, you know, on my list, on my watch list. And it's one of those things where you think, oh, I'll get around to watching that one day. And then it disappeared. And then you suggested this, so I had to rent it. But I'm so happy I did. I'm so happy I watched this film. I think it's a really strong title in the careers of every single person involved. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Yeah. And when I look at what Ridley Scott is doing now, yeah, I wonder, does he ever sit down and watch something like Thelma and Louise and think, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I know, because this, this came... So this was 1991. So it came after he'd done uh, Black Rain in 89, which no one really saw. It's that Michael Douglas thriller. I've never seen it. Never yeah. even heard of it till now. No, I hadn't until I Googled it. Yeah. Um, and before that, he did Legend, the Tom Cruise fantasy thing in 1985 uh-huh. with Tim Curry. Um, and then before that, obviously, was Blade Runner in 1982. So, and obviously, Alien and blah, blah, blah. But so he'd kind of established himself as this real voice in genre work and kind of doing very um, kind of elaborate worlds that you wouldn't necessarily experience as a regular person. And um, Thurman Louise kind of really marked him out as an actually quite versatile filmmaker who could support different voices. So this was written by Callie Curry, who was a completely unknown writer. And at the time of writing it, she was actually working as a receptionist at a commercials production company. So she's like completely unknown. And she's working this kind of really unforgiving, thankless job. And she was actually, I think she was writing some of it while she was actually at work. So she was like, you can feel the frustration <laughs> yeah. just like pouring into every page of this script. Um, but Ridley Scott really um, supports everything that she put in that script. And he gives it such a kind of dynamic feeling. Like you can feel the heat and the, and the sand and the dirt. And um, Yeah, it's funny you should say that he, he was great at world building and things like alien and blade runner i completely believed in this redneck world that he was creating yeah like you said the heat coming off the planes the dustiness Mm. the uh the the, like the asshole male chauvinistic characters one of them slightly started to go into sort of comedy parody but it's just enough the the tank driver but it's just enough that it isn't but by and large 
everyone is very grounded and the world is very realistic. And he's really clever at kind of throwing in unexpected details. Like when when Thurman and Louise are driving down one of the roads, they have to swerve to get out of the way of this water truck that's kind of barreling down, spewing water out the sides to cool down the tarmac. And it's just like these really unexpected little things that feel really authentic to that world and, and kind of are building blocks of that world that you wouldn't necessarily find other, other directors actually thinking about. I mean, I assume that was planned. <laughs> yeah, but it would be planned, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it, if it wasn't. I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the interviews that he gave recently, when he was asked about how he reshot all of... Kevin Spacey's scenes in um, what was the film called All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer a lot of a lot of the interviews he was given he said I know how to get things moving he was speaking more as a um, very talented production coordinator than a director it's often when you hear things like that that you forget that his background is advertisements. Mm-hmm. His background is getting a lot of information across in very short space of time, being really economical with what you're doing. And I think that's at play here. So little things like that mm. sell that world mm. brilliantly. But he's he's always been like this amazing visual director. Like he's an artist, essentially. He's He knows so much about great classic art. Yes. And it kind of... And in photography, he knows right. how to have something photographed. You just think, look at Alien, look at mm. look at Blade Runner. He yeah. says that that opening shot of LA, is it, it is LA, isn't it? Yeah, it's like yeah. Futurally. That opening shot of LA is actually East London when he used to get the tube home and he would see all the lights. Mm. He says that he sees things in a way that people don't and he puts them into his work. Yeah. And the fact that he was working in commercials is is indicative of his earlier style. Like what, it's similar to David Fincher, who also did that. And they yes. both have a very distinctive, very focused kind of um, kind of perfect for every project that they do visual style. It, ha- it always has that stamp on it that kind of makes you feel like you've been in that world, that environment. Yeah, but whereas with Fincher, even though he's not as good as he used to be, he is still still head and shoulders above a lot of directors he's not david fincher is not a director for hire Mm -hmm. david fincher is an artist for hire yeah you have a script like gone girl which is a pulpy piece of you know uh airport fiction Mm -hmm. and he elevates it because he knows how to tell a story visually Mm. ridley scott on the other hand seems to have become a director for hire because he's very good at having things come in under budget and under schedule. Yeah, he, he he does talk about interviews quite a lot, how he'll often come in under budget un, before the end of the, the shooting schedule as well. Yeah. Like he always comes in and finishes a film for a decent amount of money with less time than he's given. And uh, yeah, okay, you can be proud of that. That's, that's a real achievement, especially when you're working on such enormous projects. But it's like, that's kind of not the point. Like you're not... Yes, you are, you're working in a business and you are, to some degree, a businessman because he's a producer as well. Yeah. But I feel like he should be more proud of the early work that he did that, was, that had real artistic merit and had such a clear voice. Does anyone ever talk about the budget for Alien? 
or the budget for Blade Runner. I know, who cares? Yeah. And as much as I don't like Blade Runner, I think it's an incredibly boring film, that first one. <laughs> but visually, it is gorgeous. Yeah, There's not a bad visual in that film. You completely buy that rain drenched mm. film noir 1940s slash futuristic environment yeah you completely buy it and it's to do with his eyes to do with the in, fact that he is an art school kid yeah because even in th- things like hannibal which is not a very good story it, it still has kind of a hypnotic visuals like the that and like creative visuals like there's a moment where the pigeons in the the little italian square they create hannibal lecter's face and it's almost it's almost kind of it's a passing fleeting moment where you have to look at it at the right moment to see it but it's just little flourishes like that that he is amazing at was that a turning point for him between yeah what he right used to be Gladiator. yeah and it was kind of like that he did that film which was always going to be a thankless task because Jodie Foster said no yeah and nobody really liked the book I don't think and so he had, God knows why he took it on <laughs> yeah it was really odd why would you take on a, a sequel to a film that what swept Oscars? the boards at the Oscars, yeah. even though I don't give a shit, but shit about the Oscars, but is the pinnacle of Jonathan Demme's career? Yeah, I know. And he, did, and he did Hannibal, and it was just this kind of tipping point into really gorgeous, gorgeous visual films, but in terms of the actual um, kind of scripts and the content, just not just flimsy as anything. I wouldn't even say that his later films are visually gorgeous. There's nothing in all the money in the world that I found particularly appealing or mm. the, what was that film he did with? Oh, The Counselor. The Counselor, yeah. yeah. That was bizarre as well. That was really bizarre. And The Martian is, is completely anonymous. I wouldn't, yeah. you know, I wouldn't think, oh, this is the same director as Blade Runner or the same director as, no, you as Alien. Actually. Yeah. It is, it is odd. But, but this film kind of is really him just kind of like nailing it big, big, big time. It's just a hundred percent. Like it just, it's one of those magic films where everything comes together perfectly. Yeah. Like for all the goodwill films often don't get it completely right on all fronts. But this one is just like from the script to the directing, to the acting, to Hans Zimmer's score. Like it just has this really kind of mesmeric quality where you just get sucked into it. And you kind of, you're on this ride with these women and you're with them until the end. And then it deals this kind of hammer blow of an ending. It's such an emotional film. It's got so much going on. The characterization is is flawless, I think. The way that yeah. they that Gina Davis starts off as Thelma and she's very weak. She's um, childlike. She is very childlike, yeah. yeah. And And um, Thelma's like the grumpy mum. <laughs> Which one's Thelma? Sorry, Which Louise, one's Louise? Sorry, yeah. Louise you confuse me there. I always get them confused. It's so annoying. Because <laughs> it's 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 obviously Thelma and Louise's story, but you yeah. could say it's more uh, Thelma. Yeah. Because she's the one that that becomes almost like in control. Yeah. After you know, after the money goes missing, yeah. Louise falls apart, and she was previously really strong. Yeah. So that that kind of really cool crisscross where they both learn from each other mm. sometimes and in one way that's good because you know Thelma becomes strong and in another way it's bad because Louise becomes a bit of a mess <laughs> yeah that interplay and that relationship between the pair of them was such a joy to watch yeah and it's such al- a joy and it's always unexpected because I mean that kind of that kind of um transition in characters in that way 
it's not unheard of. Like we've seen that happen in plenty of other storylines yeah. before, but it's just done so beautifully with this and unexpectedly as well. Like you don't expect Thelma to suddenly become this kind of convenience store robbing mastermind. Yeah. It's like she goes in and does and has the most kind of polite hold well, she, up. She learns. She's, yeah. she's a kid. She's learned it. She's learned it from Louise and she's learned it from Brad Pitt's character who I, I, I can't remember the name JD. of. JD. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's learning from him. It's like she's seeing the world fully for the first time. Doesn't she say that? I feel like I feel like I'm awake for the first time. She's hashtag woke. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was lovely to see Michael Madsen in a decent film. Yeah, and wasn't he dashing back in the day? Yeah, he was properly dashing actually. This was before Reservoir, right? Uh, Before Reservoir Dogs. This was ninety one. So yeah, about four years before Reservoir Dogs. Although same year. Oh no, Reservoir Dogs was ninety two. So it would have been making. Yeah, it's 92. Oh, Pop right. Fiction's 94. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you think Jimmy loves Louise? Um, do you not think that it's one of those things that happens where when you're too available, you're not attractive? And when you're unavailable, and she's suddenly become really unavailable because she's off around the country, that he suddenly kind of thinks, oh, no, actually, I really want to be with you. And so you don't, don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yeah, and maybe he doesn't really actually want to be with her. Like, they're completely different people. She's she's so kind of organised and meticulous. And he's this... You don't really know that much about him, but you she's get... a bit of a schlub, but yeah. like a suave, kind right. of sexy... He's getting by on his looks kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. That, soon that's not going to work. Yeah, and so maybe it's just a case of the, the, the circumstances where suddenly something really exciting is happening in her life and he's not part of it. And so he's trying to play catch-up. And that, you know, he's proposing in a really shit way. It's almost yeah. like he doesn't doesn't really want to propose, but he feels either he has to yeah. because she wants it, or he thinks either he, he's doing it because he thinks that's what she wants. Yeah. Or yeah. he's doing it, like you said, because he, he you know, fear of missing out. Better FOMA. put a ring on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Better put a FOMA. ring on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't remember being, I don't remember seeing any female police in this film. That's true, actually, isn't it? It's very yeah. much a film about the patriarchy system yeah. entrapping women. You've got Thelma's husband, who's played by that guy. I can never remember his name, but he's in everything. I want to say Robert, but I don't think it is Robert. You You're Robert, Ro- aren't you? I am Robert. <laughs> Hello, I'm Robert. Um, he's kind of in control of of her. She, Louise doesn't seem to have anyone controlling her. Mm. But as we learn, there's a reason yeah. for that yeah. you know she was raped in Texas and yeah. that seems to be this big thing hanging over and that's 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 the reason why the whole you know, that's the spark of the film that's what gets the film going mm-hmm. that in a way Louise is able to take her revenge on the patriarchy system by shooting that would-be rapist in the chest yeah when she shoots a guy in the parking lot you there's a break where you kind of think hang on a minute that's a bit extreme isn't it like you didn't like yes he was trying to rape her but if if you're supposed to identify with the heroes of the story, which are Louise and Thelma, then we can't condone her shooting a guy when he's mouthing off at her. Yeah. Um, but then, obviously, you discover that it's it's nothing to do with what he said or even particularly what he's done. It, it's more her own trauma of the past. But event. we don't learn that until much, much, much oh, later. Yeah, like so there's a you know almost to the end of the film. So there's yeah. that that two hour chunk. It's a long film. This. It is it's just over two hours, isn't it? Yeah. So there's you know, like an hour, hour and a half, two hour chunk where we are expected to go along with that. Yeah. 
But I, do you know what? I'm not a big fan of long films, but this one, you, because you're going on this journey with them and because they evolve so organically, the, the time just absolutely zooms by. And, you know, it does not feel like a two-hour film because it, it's just so rich and it just captures you so entirely. Because it, it, there's no baggage. There's yeah. no... Yeah. There's nothing there's no reason for you to get bored. Yeah. Because always... it zips it zips along. It packs in a lot, but there's no baggage, there's no mm. fat. Mm. I just love the 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 female empowerment of it as well. I just think it's got I just love the idea of them being kind of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid where they're just yeah. kind of like bre- like blasting through the countryside. Um, angry at the way they've been treated by men. It is empowerment, but it's also they're martyrs. Oh yeah, absolutely. So they won't yeah. be able to enjoy the no. the power that they've taken. It's 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 pretty much fight back, and they're kind of they get pushed into a corner or mm. a edge, mm. and they have no choice but to you know to take the power back to take their lives into their own hands actually means ending their lives yeah you're right and it, it's almost like is are they counting on their their legacy their story kind of these two women pushed the, to the brink and literally going over the edge of it yeah you know are they counting on that legacy to then filter through america and change things do you feel that the ending you know it the car goes off and it free freeze frames mm. Did you want to see the car smash on the floor or well, and, was... and explode, or are you okay with it being free frozen there? That's that's their their legacy. That's mm. the echo. They will always be seen as flying. Yeah. When I saw it as a kid, I wanted to see it explode because I was a kid. <laughs> um, but actually, on the DVD, they've got the alternate ending, which shows the car soaring upwards and then kind of rocking and then plummeting and it kind of goes at an angle and disappears behind an outcrop of rocks okay and it has such a completely different emotional impact because leaving them up there it really does resonate across the credits and kind of you feel it's that bitter bittersweet kind of tang to it where you're like they did the right thing you know they they are forevermore Blah blah blah. Yeah, it's but joyous. When, yeah, it's joyous. But then when you see it's grease lightning. It's grease lightning, baby. <laughs> but when you see them falling and dropping behind the, the rocks, it's it's such a it's a down like a proper downer. Like well, literally, oh, fuck. Like yeah, it's like th- this ending is a downer. But when you see them actually plummeting, it's not nice. The reality of it, what's actually happening is kicking in. It does, but it also robs the film of its own empowerment. So. It kind of it ca- almost cancels out everything that has been accomplished up to that point. Weirdly, just visually, it just weirdly does that. But that that's the great thing about this film is also that that ending is so iconic and so famous. Like my boyfriend, when we sat down to watch it, all he knew was it was called Thelma and Louise, and they died in the end by running off a cliff. That's all he knew, and he still enjoyed and it the was film. Still, it still had that emotional impact to the end. It's very clever editing. It's Fantastic music by Hans Zimmer. Um, like weirdly, the alternate ending, the editing isn't as tight as the the finished ending. Do you think it was cobbled together for the DVD? Maybe. I guess so. It's got a weird track on it, like a weird kind of fakely uplifting music track. Oh. Um, 
yeah, it's just that ending has such a power to it, even though it's been parodied and spoofed. And, yeah, it's even been spoofed know. in EastEnders. <laughs> really? Yeah, uh, there was a there was an episode where I think Frank had been doing some dodgy dealing right. with um, the books, and he had too many cars on the lot compared to how many he said he had sold or not sold in the books. So Peggy and Pat. <laughs> were moving the cars. Right. And the last car they had to move, I think was like a red convertible. And they were so like joyous and so happy that they did it that before Peggy or before Pat pulled out driving the car off the lot, they held hands and did it. And they were like, had headscarves on. They looked like Thelma and Louise. <laughs> God bless these standards. They've got to do something, haven't they? Talk about the driving. When it turns into a little bit of an action scene, it's mm. very realistic. It's not suddenly, you know, Louise or Thelma become the Fast and the Furious. Mm. It's very much entrenched in that world of how someone would realistically drive a large Cadillac through the dust and away from the away from the police yeah. and through the rocks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You get that kind of the dust kicking up, and there's that great shot where they're zooming off across that field, and there's like ten cop cars all closing in. And they've yes, all got streams yes. of dust behind it's, them. It's not so much smack bang down, so it's um, almost coming up uh, vertically oh, through yeah. the frame. Yeah. It's slightly off at an angle, yeah. so it, it gives a sort of a sense of tension. Yeah, but that's that's early Ridley Scott. Mm. That's what I'm talking about when I say he knows or he used to know. Yeah. you know how to compose a shot visually how to it wasn't just lighting it wasn't just going oh this bit needs to be dark and this bit needs to be neon mm. it's it's like the photography in this film is gorgeous yeah. and it reminded me of all those old john ford cowboy movies yeah this this is a almost like a cowboy film it just happens yeah. that it's two girls in a car instead of you know nameless men on horses yeah but it's They're got, outlaws. It's got that, yeah, they are outlaws. And it's got that similar kind of almost apocalyptic apocalyptic feel to it where they're kind of in this, like almost, they're in this kind of wasteland almost. It's just kind of, they just keep on going forever kind of thing. And and they would never and, hit civilization yeah, or anything. Yeah, it's like they really are out in the middle of nowhere just being chased down by the cops. So let's talk about actual Thelma and actual Louise. The actual ones. Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. I feel because neither of those two actresses are particularly showbizy or movie star like, they're the perfect actresses to play Thelma and Louise. If it was if it was someone else, if it was a a Hollywood starlet or a Hollywood juggernaut, I think that would completely overpower the film and completely undermine that realistic world that Ridley Scott is trying to build. Yeah. Like, Goldie Horn and Meryl Streep were supposed... Well, they were circling this movie and were thinking about making it together. And they ultimately made um, Death Becomes Her instead. But can you imagine if Which they, I love. Of course. They were perfect for that film because that film was all about glamour and kind of youth and beauty and all that stuff. Whereas yeah. Thelma Louise is like this gritty kind of feminist war cry. Um, and they would have been... Although, obviously, I love both of those actresses. They just wouldn't have worked in this film because it's not about personalities. It's about them submerging themselves into these characters and kind of getting into the, the bones of these women. Yeah, it's not a Goldie Hawn picture. Right, exactly. It's not Meryl Streep. Even though Meryl Streep is a character actress, mm. she is a leading lady and it is a Meryl Streep picture. Right, and this is very even 
kind of an even two-hander, I guess. Yeah, but it's it's almost like like I've I've said before in this podcast, the the actresses step back, the character comes forward. Yeah, yeah. It really isn't Goldie Horn in a car. Yeah. It is Susan Sarandon playing a character who is sitting in the car. The mm. character is there. It's not Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Susan Sarandon is the one who's become the the big star, I would say. Like she's the one who's got the, the Hollywood heft. But actually Gina Davis was the one who had the bigger movies under her belt when she did this film. So she had done like The Fly, Beetlejuice and Earth Girls Are Easy Rich. She was in Beetlejuice, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah, she, she was... was in The Fly. Yeah. Well, Susan Sarandon had worked with Tony Scott, Ridley's brother, in uh, yeah. The Hunger. Yeah, yeah. Maybe 10 years afterwards. before. It was like oh, 19... was it before? Yeah, it was 1983. Oh, right, yeah. That was with David Bowie. That's a really... That's, that's a really good. cool film. That's good. I like that film. Yeah. Mm, we should do it on the podcast. Yeah, we should. Yeah. But in terms of... Well, that's interesting because Susan Sarandon didn't sign on until way after Gina Davis. Like, Gina Davis's contract said that she could play either Thelma or Louise did, based on who they could find to play Louise, basically. Right. So... Who was the bigger star? Well, I'm guessing Gina Davis had more kind of box office or kind of more visibility in the movie world. Was she the, the hotter one? Not in, not, yeah. not in aesthetics, but as in like, yeah. who is the hot ticket? Who is the yeah, marquee value? Yeah, I think it was her. Susan Sarandon had been around... She'd been around a while. Like she as, was, a, as a name, she not like just Rocky an actress. Horror. Right. <gasps> she was in Rocky Horror. Yeah. Fuck, yes. So she had that kind of indie cool thing going for okay. her as well. Okay, because she's never really been like a, a blockbuster super mainstream has she no like she did speed racer which was an absolute flop in 2006 but other than that no. she's like she's always she's always been kind of like the more um the hippie version of meryl streep i would say yeah like she did banger sisters and and she's always been very um vocal about women's rights and and kind and of all that. gay rights and yeah exactly anti-war she's married yeah. to tim robbins right yeah okay yeah. that makes sense now yeah Okay, she's like the unshowy version of Meryl Streep, I think. Like, I don't, I never feel like Susan Sarandon really gives a fuck about awards. Like, I don't feel that she really cares. I think she just wants to do good work and have fun. (laughs) She's an actress, not a star. Yeah, 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 exactly. What's interesting is that Brad Pitt is in this movie. Yeah. This film shows, A, when he wants to be, what a fantastic actor he is. Because this is another one where... Brad Pitt steps back and the character steps forward. But the effect of having Brad Pitt in this film is lesser than having Brad Pitt from now in the film. He wasn't a known name then. He was no. a nobody. No, he'd done he was an episode just... of 21 Jump Street and done an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Oh, wow. He was literally nobody. He was like bit part player in episodic TV. Yeah. But he's, he's so... He's against the type that he would be known as. He's, he's, a, yeah. he's not meet Joe Black here. No, and also the character, like, so George Clooney auditioned five times for this role. He really wanted the role. But now, if the film was made now... That would not have worked. No, but the character wouldn't have been, like, Brad Pitt in this film is kind of like a rattlesnake. Like, he's really, like, lithe and skinny and kind of... But he's got hypnotic eyes and he's got this grin. And when he grins, you feel like you're just going to be putty in his hands. (laughs) But if it was made nowadays, it would be someone like The Rock or someone who was like chiseled as fuck. It'd be Zac Efron. Yeah, it would be. It'd be someone... It would be the star cameo. Yeah, yeah. But it's just great that he just kind of like slithers into the film. Yeah. Lays his little legs and then fucks off. But then he's brought back. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, that's it. That's his... 
His scenes done. He's not. He's brought back and he's quite a snivelling little shit. Yeah, yeah, there's that. He's, that's great. There's no, there's no redeeming quality. You see both. That's that's one of the great things is you see two sides of every character. So with the husband at home, he's kind of this really bullshit, aggressive, uncaring, unsympathetic guy. But as soon Thelma's as, husband. Yeah, Thelma's yeah. husband. As soon as he's gone, he's this like kind of like this sad middle-aged idiot just yeah, like, he's not even middle-aged he's like probably yeah. mid-30s yeah and the same happens he's our age <laughs> oh god <laughs> um, and it's the same happens with Brad Pitt so he he's this gorgeous kind of um, kind of like an Achilles like a he just comes in and beds um, Thelma and he's yeah. gorgeous and then when you see him at the police station he's actually a brat yeah. You kind of, you see all these flips throughout the film. It's very clever. It's like the facade of who they want to convince themselves that they are. Yeah. And the way that they want to come across to other people is completely stripped down and removed. Yeah. And it's stripped down and removed in both cases by the police. Because mm. the police, he would never bully the police like he bullied Thelma. Yeah. And the kid would never, um, you know. Try and seduce the cops. Yeah, he wouldn't end up fucking the cops. Yeah. But he obviously saw... Yeah. Thelma as as someone weak and took advantage of her mm. but oddly in in doing that she became empowered because after he steals the money like I said that's when it switches and she becomes the strong character mm. and Louise momentarily breaks down mm. do you notice how many times Thelma tried to eat that chocolate bar in the kitchen at the beginning she kept putting it in the fridge and taking it out again no. I love that I love that <laughs> stuff where it's like They've obviously really thought about what felt like Thelma imbues every action that she performs in that tiny space. And she's just bumbling around, like completely chaotic, has no idea what's going on. She like takes one nibble of the chocolate bar, puts it in the fridge, takes it out again, nibbles it, puts it back. And she's just like absolutely chaotic. Is this right at the start? It's when... right at the start of the film. I don't, I'd have to rewatch that bit. It's so clever. It's just like a real insight into her character, indecisive nibbling on things not committing to anything it's but great. also there's obviously a level of anxiety there as well no that's true actually yeah yeah she's extremely anxious she's like Han. she's like she's like talking through the nibbling she's like because she's trying to she's trying to like either a tell him that she's going on holiday yeah or b make everything seem so normal because she feels she's lying to him yeah. by not telling him yeah i love it when she's like and you have a nice day at work today. And just <laughs> <laughs> she's got a real little suggestion of that, what she turns into. Why does she phone him? A uh, sense of duty, maybe. Or maybe she hopes that he actually does love her. And that she's... Will he recognise a change in her? Like, there, there could be anything going on there. I like that she catches him out later on when he's like, oh my God, I'm so worried about you. And she just, bang, hangs up the phone. Mm. The police are with him. Yeah, yeah. But then why does, why does Louise phone back knowing that the police could trace them? I think she left it too long. I think she wanted to speak to them. But I think that she got too wrapped up in that conversation and she ended up actually fucking it up. She's the undoing. I think it was a mistake, yeah. Yeah. Because that's how they found... That's one thing. The geography was confusing. They seem to be driving a lot and they seem to be quite far away, but the police get to them pretty quickly. I don't, yeah, I don't understand they, any of the, the geography. Yeah, and they find Brad Pitt really quickly. Yeah. And I'm not sure how they did find Brad Pitt. I know that they traced a value of money via Michael Madsen's character. Yeah. 
via Jimmy. But then how do they link it to Brad Pitt's character? Because they just bring him in. They, they've just out of nowhere got I him. I think it's just chance. I think they arrest him for something and they find the exact amount of money on him. Hmm. It's a bit coincidental. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it matters. <laughs> because <laughs> We still love you. Because, the, the, you know, there's the amazingness of this film far outweighs any damaging plot holes that aren't really plot holes. They, yeah. They're, they're inconsequential. Because the details that are there are brilliant, like that truck going by with the water. And, yeah. And like Susan Sarandon, she worked in lots of little details like, uh, Louise puts her trainers into a bat into like a plastic bag as she's packing little things like that and bring in the lamp <laughs> I don't need a lamp that's Louise oh god damn it Louise yeah she puts the whatever <laughs> <laughs> still I've only seen it once and I get it that which one's Thelma and which one's Louise I can only remember which one's which by going god damn it Thelma and that's Louise alright <laughs> I do like that they blow up the gas tank with their little guns yeah just by sheer accident, it reminded me of that scene in Falling Down when Michael Douglas accidentally triggers the bazooka into the pipes <laughs> to blow up whatever's down there. Yeah. That, sh- that scene, apparently Ridley Scott wanted to, to watch, to capture um, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis's real reaction to the truck blowing up. So he put a camera on them. They weren't expecting it to blow up. And then when it blew up, they were so shocked they didn't react at all. They just had like completely blank faces. Yeah, just let them act. Yeah, exactly. Let them act. The only character I didn't believe in is that... that um, yeah, the, the owner of that. Truck yeah, driver. the kind of cartoon truck driver. He could barely speak. He was so Neanderthalic. <laughs> Dragging his knuckles along the floor. Yeah, he was. He was ridiculous. What did you think of um, Harvey Keitel? Did you believe that he was actually going to save them? That he was, he, he was interested in their interests? I think so, yes. Mm. Because he was really uncomfortable with the amount of armed guards um, aimed at them as, as they're, you know, that, that end scene where they've stopped, they've all stopped mm. and they're, they're all trying to work out what's going to happen. The Thurman and Louise are having their moment where like, are we going back or are we mm. going forward over the cliff to our death? Just keep on going. So yes, I think I did believe that he was a good egg, even though he was clearly one of the boys, because you know they were like running in the rain and jumping on the uh, the, the porch, like you know, like like boisterous boys. Yeah. You know, they never, however old you get, you never grow up. You're yeah. always that little kid in your head, and it's that kind of um, frat boy thing where you feel a bit insecure so you've got to like get one up on the other guy so yeah i i think i I did believe in him and he wasn't a miserable bastard in this film no he wasn't actually he had like a little twinkle in his eye but in terms of harvey keitel roles this is probably the straightest he's ever been he wasn't the wolf in pulp fiction he wasn't you know in in sister act Yes, he wasn't yeah, in Sister Act, which that's kind of cartoony. Yeah. But he wasn't um, bad lieutenant. Bad lieutenant yeah. He was a cop. And he, he like was a real person. Yeah. And yeah. A, a cop who seemed to have a set of morals that maybe the other cop agencies don't have. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he did genuinely seem like a good guy. But you can't... I wasn't entirely sure the whole way through. Like, I felt more like I was... Uh, empathizing with Thurman Louise where they weren't really they were so distrustful of the law obviously because she's I mean we, we assume she was raped and no justice was yeah was had so. but also why would they 
it's a patriarchy system, so why yeah. would they believe the two women? Yeah, Obviously, true. the man did nothing wrong. She was dancing with him all night, so yeah. why would they get yeah. believed? It's not necessarily anything that Harvey Keitel has done to them. It's who he works for and what he represents. Mm. He's a man. They're women. He does, and also he represents the removal of this this freedom that they've discovered that is so um, life-giving. You know, yeah, they're liberated. They've, they've liberated. They've discovered this this huge world is open to them, and they are literally plowing their way through it, doing whatever they want, and kind of knocking down the guys who are attempting to um, take them down. I guess, and 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 Harvey Cattell kind of represents incarceration and the complete removal of all that freedom, yeah. which they have now discovered is is vital to their existence. <laughs> yeah, it allows them to grow. Yeah, it's a terrible dichotomy where. They've discovered this freedom through violence and they can't keep it, basically. It's really fucking sad. This film is so emotional. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. I almost did. And I got the um, full body chill factor. But you've seen it before. Yeah, but it still gets me every time. I think it's the combination of that music at the end and the way they look at each other. And I just love that she kisses her at the end. Yeah. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just friendship. It's pure love, isn't it? It's just pure love and friendship. And there's just something about that that is just, I always, it gets me like, happy sad always gets me. So that was Thelma and Louise directed by Ridley Scott. Are you a fan? Did you like it? Are you a Thelma? Are you a Louise? Have you got a Cadillac? We want to know. It's not a Cadillac anyway, it's a Thunderbird. <laughs> Drop us a tweet at Tornstubs Pod. And if you like what we do, head over to iTunes, rate and review and click and share all that new technology bullshit. And if you like culture, film, TV and theatre, head to movetotrash.co.uk. We're off on the run. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut.